Welcome to the Future Sense podcast with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans, broadcast weekly from our Future Sense pod in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Australia, and available on your favourite podcast platforms or directly through rd.org slash futuresense. That's double A-D-double-I.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Future Sense Show or on our Facebook page. Thanks for joining us today. And this is part two of this week's Future Sense podcast, and we've been talking to Mick Palmer, who, amongst many other things that he has been involved in and still involved in, was the uh, commissioner of the Australian Federal Police, the AFP, uh, for seven years until 2001. And he's been involved in reform in the policing and um, culturally in many different areas for quite a long time, and has also shown interest and uh, is in, engaged with uh, with uh, uh, mental health issues such as PTSD that he was talking about in the first part. We recommend that you listen to the first part before you listen to this, although not necessarily, but we're going to talk to him further now about the future of policing. Thanks, Nick. And where we covered uh, some of the challenges and uh, particularly events that are rolling out around the world at the moment in, in relation to policing and police clashes with protesters and those sorts of things, in this part... We would like to look at the opportunities and really ask the question, how do we allow what is effectively a global revolution in human values and human society to go ahead peacefully and at the same time maintain law and order within our societies? Mick, I know that's a a really large question, uh, and I guess uh, as they they say, you know, like eating an elephant, we'll just take it one bite at a time. Um, but, yeah, so I, I guess uh, perhaps we could start by asking you the question, given your experience and your knowledge of how policing is changing around, it, around the world at the moment, what will the role of police look like within society in 20 years from now, as far as you can see? Uh, I guess I'm not sure what it will look like. I... I'd like to think I know what I think it should look like, mm. uh, and I think it should be uh, there should be much stronger partnerships created between policing and the broader community, and particularly uh, disadvantaged uh, sectors of the community. Uh, we have to spend, I think, far more time uh, on, and this is getting better all the time. I'm not saying this in a way that suggests we're not doing this now. I think some police organisations are doing this very well with different sectors of the community. But we need to try to create an environment where uh, police officers or those people in terms of first responders who are responsible for enforcing the laws of the land, if you like, the laws of the day, have the greatest understanding possible as to the circumstances of the people who are most likely to be committing those sort of crimes, who are most likely to be upset by the agenda of the day, Uh, So we spend a lot more time, as I mentioned earlier, uh, educating our people on the why. Why why is this behaviour happening? What are are the circumstances that lead to people behaving in a certain way? Uh, Now, they won't always be circumstances that you can say, oh, that's understandable, we we should allow them to do that. On some occasions, of course, people will be driven by greed or revenge or or just, uh, you know, whatever self-motivation might drive them that is, from a community point of view, unacceptable. But... The more we can understand the circumstances against which any protest or any crime is being committed, the more chance we have uh, of uh, dealing with it effectively uh, and not just uh, dealing with the behaviour, if you like, but rather changing the behaviour or understanding it and putting in place laws that better represent what we should, what should our response be. Uh, 
part of that has to be that we spend more time, uh, and this means, and this is not just an issue for policing, of course, this needs government will, we spend more time in genuine dialogue with the, with the various parties. Uh, you know, we, in the same way as historically, uh, policing has been much more effective in dealing with blue-collar crime than ever it has been in dealing with white-collar crime, generally because blue-collar crime is generally unsophisticated, often committed in public, uh, frequently doesn't have too much planning associated with it. Probably uh, often, and often desperate, I imagine. Who, <laughs> who are driven by desperation and, yeah. you know, and so therefore, you know, are not thinking too much about avoiding the responsibility. White-collar crime is normally planned and committed by highly thoughtful people who've had a lot of experience in the field uh, and are pretty smart at hiding what they did. Uh, so we've got to get smarter at dealing, uh, at, at levelling that field, uh, and that requires us to we're always going to be faced with a lot of, you know, what is colloquially termed blue-collar crime, but we need to understand much more than we do at the moment, I think, the reality why so much of that crime occurs and start to engage ourselves much more in the preventive mechanism. There's been a lot of talk over probably 20 or 30 years now of, about preventive policing, but we really haven't got very effective at it. Uh, we have little pockets of success. Um, there are many reasons for that, and one of them, of course, is funding and resource scarcity. The phone rings a lot of times. Police have to respond to a lot of crime. And, of course, in this current environment, that's likely to go up, not down. And so the time that you have available to be involved in longer-term preventive mechanisms is reduced, restricted, uh, and sometimes in a resource sense almost impossible. But unless we are prepared to engage in that process so that we both get to understand each other more, uh, we're not likely to be successful. The other thing is to think, and governments need, I think, to take a real responsibility for this, and this, in a sense, I guess, without pushing one of my bandwagons, is the issue in terms of drug law reform, uh, that while you've got offences that, because of their very nature, regardless of the impact of the offences, uh, puts young police officers in conflict with young Australians, uh, we're always going to have a situation of conflict uh, and a, a lack of trust uh, with uh, us being or police being seen as the enemy and uh, the young Australians committing those sort of crimes, if we think about drug use, for example, as being the enemy. Uh, there's, there's no winners in that at all. Uh, and, and if we could find a way by which police were seen as the friends and not the enemy, not there to enforce the law, but rather to protect uh, and to assist, uh, we'd create a, a hugely advantageous relationship with the people who are most likely to otherwise come to notice. And we could make very significant inroads in the same way as they are now in a number of programs, and I'm aware of a couple, uh, with Indigenous youth uh, who may be suffering from homelessness and unemployment and so on and are uh, fairly significantly disadvantaged as a consequence are committing uh, some street, street offences or other crime. Uh, the more and the closer the relationships between those, those people, those young men and women, generally men but both, and police, uh, the better the results always prove to be. Thanks, Mick. In terms of mechanisms for law reform, and I think this is a particularly uh, important issue when you're talking about changing values, you know, the, the, the values associated with the old paradigm in terms of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in society can be quite different to, to of course, the new paradigm values that are emerging now. And we need mechanisms yep. within society to provide that feedback from grassroots and from uh, systems, you know, such as our police forces, our services, uh, you know, back to the, the decision makers in government, the people who are who are creating the law, 
um, you know, for consideration of change and, and uh, implementation of change. And throughout your career as a policeman, you know, what's been your experience in that field? I mean, have you, have you seen effective mechanisms where that's really worked quite well at all? Uh, I can't say I've seen mechanisms where it's really worked quite well. I mean, and one of the problems with that has been that, you know, almost all of our statistical collection and the data upon which we rely, if you like, to, to formulate opinions and strategies and, and give advice uh, are based again on, on the what uh, rather than on the why. And I think if we could start creating uh, better stats, more comprehensive stats, not to say they don't exist, but in my experience they are limited, uh, and only sectional uh, in terms of the reasons why crimes are committed and some of the uh, you know, academics involved in the criminology field do this much better I guess uh, in my experience but we need to get a far better understanding of you know the reasons why crimes and behavior crimes are committed and behavior occurs uh, and then as part of that as, as a second phase to that question ask ourselves what are the best ways by which uh, we can have an impact a positive impact on that uh, are the police the best people who can do that? Are there other people who should be involved in the equation? What should the partnership be? So we need to, I think, spend the time to do that in a way we haven't done yet. So I, I don't think we've been very successful, really, in gathering uh, and then explaining or publishing or promoting the data that we really need to promote if we're going to change behaviour. We uh, Policing tends to be in governments, if I'm quite frank, more so than police tend to try to drive change by the fear of a big stick. Uh, and, uh, you know, you play the game, you're going to take the knocks. Uh, and the police are left to pick up the piece, if you like, or as piggy in the middle. But we need to be much more scientific, I think, about that in our analysis of the reality of social behaviour uh, and why it is occurring. Get to the highest level of understanding we can as to why it's occurring and what we can do about that from our point of view, and it'll generally be a multifaceted response that is needed, including from governments. Some of that might require legal change, law changes and, uh, and the like, uh, but mu much of it can be achieved by, and again, it goes back to our earlier discussions on the nature of policing as it changes, if you like, back from force to service, where there's greater democracy in policing and there's a greater delegation of responsibility in the exercise of discretion. But, that, you know, when you have such well-trained and well-educated police as uh, 2020 provides us, we should have confidence in allowing those same men and women to exercise their discretion in terms of what is the most appropriate thing to do in a given circumstance without them being likely to be criticised for not taking, uh, you know, firm action when they some people may consider they should have, you know, deciding not to arrest in a given circumstance. Uh, I think we need to be, we need to show more trust in that environment and we need to try to come to a collective that gives us a much better understanding of what it is that we're trying to achieve and how best we publicise and promote those facts in terms of uh, the response that policing is giving. The more people understand the reasons why police are doing things, the better they're likely to comply with those requirements. Mm. That, that all certainly sits very I'm well. I'm not sure, Steve, if that really answered your question. Uh, look, look it, it does. Uh, thanks, Mick. It sits very well with you know the understanding of what's driving change and how the world is, how people are changing. Uh, based on the research of Claire Graves. And um, as we mentioned during the break, we're going to send you a, a copy of the change code uh, after we finish talking uh, in thanks for your input to the show. Um, are there any countries uh, around the world that are standing out to you at the moment as leading the way in respect to the kind of changes that you've described? Uh, I'm, I haven't been studying it well enough to really give a 
give a, a valuable comment on that, Steve. I, I would expect it is likely from my previous assessments that some of the Scandinavian countries are likely to be as, as well advanced as any, uh, and, and that will vary. Uh, but I'm I'm just not across the detail. I haven't had occasion to look at that in in, in quite a while, quite frankly. Uh, when I looked at it, what it seemed to me on on my last assessment of that sort of thing is that wherever you looked, whether it be the United Kingdom, Scandinavia, or other police forces around the world, they were doing some things well. They'd have an initiative, or maybe a, a tandem or a group of initiatives that were achieving a lot in in given discrete areas of, uh, of activity or focus, if you like, uh, without it becoming a, a force-wide mandate or, or discipline or, or directive or, or expectation. Uh, and I think that's what we need to do. I think, you know, again, getting back to where we started in terms of what John Avery was trying to create with his force to service, it's about changing the environment across the organisation, not just for particular parts of it, not just in troubled areas where, you know, and I know there's a, a very good, as I understand, a very good uh, uh, initiative occurring at the moment in Dubbo involving Indigenous uh, young people and the police in Dubbo where the, the connect connectivity between the two and the way in which they're doing business and, the, you know, the exercise of discretion and uh, finding ways other than just arrest to deal with uh, socially disruptive behaviour uh, have proven to be enormously successful. And you've seen, and I saw in the Northern Territory, many examples of that. But they tend to be sort of singular focused or area focused because it's a problem area or a problem group of people or whatever, or, or they're recognised or seen to be, rather than becoming, you know, the new mandate of the service itself. And I think that's the challenge we have to get. It's it's the downside, if you like, of, of using discretion as an arm to say that, you know, we do have very well qualified young men and women, we should allow them to exercise their discretion much more broadly than what they do. I think that would take us a long way mm -hmm. towards achieving some of these connectivities and uh, levels of trust that we need to achieve between ourselves, between police and the, the society or community at, 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 at large. But uh, it, it's, it's only sort of part of the equation. I, I think... Uh, we need to think a bit more deeply about, about that issue if we're going to, uh, and we need to, as uh, John Avery said, we need to sort of create an environment where from the top down, this is this is, the, is preached as the way we do business. If we're going to be successful in this new age, uh, getting back to a question some few questions ago, Steve, we need to develop a, a better and much more positive and constructive relationship with the community at large and particularly with uh, problematic uh, portions of or disadvantaged portions of or at risk portions of the community in order to ensure that whatever we decide it is that we should do, it is based on the best possible advice, including particularly advice from the people, A, who may be committing otherwise uh, the issue, the behaviours that about, upon which we are focused, or uh, are being impacted by it. So who are the people who should know most about this and why it's occurring? What can they tell us? What does that tell us we should do about dealing with? How much advice should we take from these people as to what it is that most most likely will be successful? And the answer is we don't take anywhere near enough advice like that at the moment. They often have the answers to their own problems uh, and uh, because not many people want to live in a situation of, of violence or social unrest or, or whatever. Uh, so to ask the people most impacted by the behaviour as to what it is they think would be most likely to make an impact, a positive impact, uh, beyond that, which we now do, I think would take us quite a way down this track. But those things have to be embedded uh, mm. over time 
uh, as part of the, the force or the service psychology. Yeah, you've sort of answered the question I was ruminating about because you've been talking about the what's uh, the what and then the why, and I kept on wondering about the who, and you've kind of started to answer exactly that yep. question about that con- connectivity between those uh, those often disadvantaged groups of people, um, uh, multicultural, indigenous, and so forth, who are out there who don't feel that they have a voice in that, in that in sort of engagement. But going back, flipping it back just quickly to, I just want to mention some figures here because you're also talking really, as you said, top down, but you're talking about, uh, training is not a very good word, but uh, from the same article I quoted in the first part from New Directions of Police Academy training from last December, it's an American document, they talk about police academies in the US, and maybe it's slightly different here, the, uh, the amount of training that uh, amounts to about 213 hours of operations training, firearms and defence, use of force 168 hours, self-improvement 89 hours, legal education 86, mental illness 10 hours. And in the category of self-improvement, more than half the curriculum focuses on health and fitness. And the re- remainder of self-improvement training consists primarily of ethics and integrity, communications, professionalism and stress prevention management. Most of this is quite a small amount of, of all of that and it's not um, standardised across the US. And I don't know how that sits here, but it occurs to me straight away that there doesn't seem to be in that very uh, simplistic uh, categorization of, of uh, those parts of the police training that there's not or is there specific training regarding uh, minorities, regarding different cultural uh, truths and uh, who these people are out there that um, that these new police officers are going to be policing, in fact? Oh, yeah, well, I think the sure. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not right across the detail. I haven't looked at, uh, you know, state police force training uh, uh, schedules for a long time, uh, course programs and the like, but... Uh, I think the answer is certainly yes, they do. They are given education and mm. development in those areas. I think it's probably fair to say nowhere are we doing it as well as we could or giving it as much time as we need. Uh, but that's a layman's answer. I don't know the detail, and there might be some very good examples of the fact that, you know, that's not right, and they are. Uh, but I, I'll be surprised if, in fact, we are doing doing that as well as we could and should. Uh, sometimes, you know, certainly historically, in my experience, it was more of a tick-the-box situation doing lip service, excuse me, doing lip service to uh, that issue rather than really dealing with it effectively and thoroughly. Uh, so uh, I think we can do better. It is without question, uh, uh, you know, the, those those soft sciences, if you like, are going to be critically important going forward. I mean, one of the downsides, uh, and you, you quoted uh, from one of those uh, publications previously about the number of, the amount of equipment that young police officers these days carry, which I guess is one of my... My bones, I understand why it's happening, but I think it's a, it's a hugely counterproductive situation. Uh, the best weapon a police man or woman will ever have will be uh, his or her uh, brain and powers of, of negotiation. Uh, and uh, your mouth will always be much more valuable to you than your, your pepper spray or your sidearm or your baton. Uh, and uh, we need to spend a lot more time in giving people, making sure that people have the best possible skills and have the best possible understanding of the ways by which they can successfully and diplomatically negotiate a troublesome situation without the need to put their hand on on a weapon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the better we get at that, you'll find the result is the less they will have to put their hand mm. upon a weapon. Is it, is uh, and a... certainly in my younger day, sorry? I was just going to ask you, is there, a, is there room for empathy in a future police force to take it that far? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, yes, I think there is. Yeah, I think that's got to be part of the training that we we develop. And I, I, this is uh, this is there in some circumstances. And often, when you when you consider 
there's a couple of things I think we need to really make sure people understand. One is even today, police exercise positive discretion far more than negative discretion in terms of you know not taking action when they could uh, and giving person uh, people the benefit of, of the doubt or letting them uh, you know explaining their conduct and allowing them to to learn a lesson from that without taking formal action. Police do exercise a lot of positive discrimination in favour of a person who they find otherwise committing technically committing an offence. Uh, and they spend a lot more time helping people than ever they do arresting people. That's sort of the nature of policing. We know there's a lot more good people in the world that we have to help than there are bad people who we have to arrest. Uh, uh, that is the reality. And again, it's a bit like a referee in a football game. You notice the mistakes, but you don't often notice the good things they do. And I think that's the case in policing. You know, it's a lot of enormously positive things that occur that, of course, none of us notice because that's, that's what they're paid for. And it's only when things go wrong and when people... You know, use force they shouldn't use or use pepper spray in a circumstance they probably shouldn't use or people think they shouldn't use, etc., uh, that we that it gets publicity. Uh, I think it's important to try to get that balance. Uh, but I think, and as part of it, so empathy is not, not devoid of presence at the moment, but I think more excellent, more understanding to people. Young people who join policing are generally pretty smart, as I said. They're academically well-qualified, uh, you know, they're pretty articulate and, and they'll pick things up pretty quickly. All we need to do is sometimes give them a few more tools, a few more ideas about how they may exercise a certain pattern of conduct and they'll be more than happy to pick it up and run with it, particularly as they're the people against whom the violence is going to be perpetrated if they don't get it right. So to teach people you know, how to diffuse situations in a range of ways and how to create empathy between yourselves and otherwise people who may not feel a great deal of empathy towards you uh, is a very positive thing to do in terms of all parties. Uh, it is achievable. Uh, and, th and I know, you know, from my own career, way back as, as long as I go, which is a long time, uh, the police who were always the best were those that could think quickly on their feet and were good with the words. Uh, they would frequently diffuse situations where other people would end up coming to fisticuffs or worse. Uh, and, you know, good detectives, good, good officers have always been good at using the power of speech and the power of empathy, if you like, and, and, and college, collegiality, if you like, uh, to diffuse the situation, gain the trust of the people who otherwise were very distrustful and hose down a situation that could have become very violent. I think we need to build on that. And, be, and again, that's a, very much, I think, empathy is very much focused on the why, Steve, isn't it? That you can't really have empathy unless you understand more about who it is we're dealing with, why it is they're likely to be doing what they're doing, why I shouldn't be so angry about the fact they're doing it than I otherwise would be because I've got some understanding now of why that might be happening uh, and how it is, therefore, I can do something about it that might be a win-win situation for both sides. Uh, I think there needs to be more. I think certainly it is part of the training programs at the moment, I would suspect, in every police force, but we can do much better. That's fantastic, Mick. Really appreciating your, your thoughts here. Um, just going back to that really big question that I asked at the beginning, you know, how do we allow a revolution to take place on, on a large scale, which involves the decentralisation of power? In other words, governments of the present day actually giving away some of their powers, uh, decentralising them, uh, and still, you know, maintain a, an orderly society. Um, and what I can say from you know, from the research of Claire Graves and you know what we've learned from history is that change needs to happen faster these days simply because our communication technology is very fast and so uh, if people who are wanting change can talk to each other very quickly and they can make big things happen very quickly uh, you know we have the whole flash mob thing now with mobile phones and that kind of stuff um, and from a systemic point of view what we need is we need faster communications and faster 
processes for considering and designing and implementing change within our social systems, you know, so this is, really goes to the heart of government, I guess. And I'd be interested on your thoughts, you know, in terms of where do we start with that? I mean, because what we're really talking about here is we're talking about, um, you know, a large number of people going out in the street and saying we're not happy with life. Um, the police, you know, being the meat in the sandwich, as I said before, uh, and then somehow the reasons, the why behind that needs to be discovered in the first place and then communicated back to the decision makers, which which I guess we're talking about government and, we, you know, we're talking about structural change that's needed here uh, to the way we govern ourselves and, and how do we accelerate that process of the consideration of the need for change, you know, design of new systems, enacting new systems and those sorts of things and just, you know, it's, it's basically... Uh, accelerating the change process. I mean, it's if we don't do this consciously, it's going to be forced upon us. And I think the whole COVID nineteen exercise we've, we're, we're going through right now is a great example of unexpected forced change, where we we have no choice but just to drop everything and do something different. And and of course, that's damaging our economy. It's damaging uh, the workforce in terms of you know unemployment and those sorts of things. And and. Ideally, we want to try and avoid the collateral damage as much as we can. Uh, have you got any thoughts about accelerating that social change process? Uh, no, no bolt of lightning thought I have to say, Steve. Um, I mean, certainly it's a, it's, a, it's a question for governments much more so than police. I, I think it's it's all though part interwoven in, in the bigger picture we've been talking about in that governments have to become better I think I mean the mere fact that somebody's protesting about something doesn't isn't isn't a case for saying therefore it should be changed I mean sometimes protests are based on uh, you know pretty narrow thinking or you know a, a personal grievance that may not have a great a great deal of uh, substance or uh, sustainability to it or legitimacy to it if you look much more broadly and carefully at it I mean every protest is not the sort of protest that ought to win just because they protest uh, but many of the agi- many of the agitations of course are driven by very deep-seated social unrest and social disadvantage and, uh, and and a lot of very solid grievances that really do need to be addressed and dealt with. Uh, so, you know, it's not one size fits all, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make, the, the fact of protest. Uh, Absolutely. Policing, as I said before, have, have got a lot uh, to gain if they can reduce the number of po- protests and increase the amount of trust between protesters and governments and so on because they're the piggy in the middle and they're the people who are going to be attacked if the protests turn in any way violent. I think as part of that process, governments are always going to be loath to let go of control. So it's going to have to be a, a measured and, and step process of changing laws gradually to reflect the will of the community, if you like, which is really what elected governments are supposed to do. I think as part of that process, one of the things I think that does have to happen is that governments have to be much more prepared to both seek and listen to the comments uh, of people like police police organisations, for example. And if the police were to do the job we're talking about, really spend even more time on uh, increasing and improving the empathy between themselves and the people they're most likely to have dealings with, Uh, to change the way in which they're doing business so it becomes much more aimed at reducing and removing conflict and developing strong and positive relationships than simply, in other words, looking at the why of the crime and dealing with that than just uh, arresting the people for the what. Uh, If governments are then willing to listen to uh, the reasons, not only the reasons why that's happening, because I guess that argument would almost have to be run before the government would give the police organisation, in many cases, the money necessary to do some of the the why things I'm talking about. But if that 
if the results of those behaviours and those initiatives were sought and shared with governments, governments would be much more relaxed, I'm sure, to say, OK, that means we could think about, for example, removing that law or changing that behaviour pattern or allowing that to occur. Uh, I mean, in almost every situation, uh, it is fear that creates ignorance that creates the fear. And the more we understand the reasons why something is happening, the more likely we will, A, not fear it and realise there is a way by which we can deal with it. I think that's very much a case for governments. I mean, you're seeing, I'm watching now, in recent times I've been watching uh, some governments changing their position in terms of street violence and talking again about getting tough and, you know, uh, if we're not careful, building more prisons and so on. It's an easy answer and it's publicly popular if people don't have anything more to go on if, if that's the extent of if, if the what is the extent of their understanding and they see more break and enters or more street violence or more assault and robberies uh the more you lock up the better off that those people are going to like it but if you understand the reasons why some of that is happening and that there are things we can do to make it far less likely to happen people might think more broadly about what the, the effective treatments to that problem might be uh, and i think it's the same both for the community because governments are not going to do anything they think is unpopular. It means why drug reform, law reform is so difficult in my in my view to achieve that people are concerned. And I've had, uh, you know, senior leaders of governments in this country personally say to me, we know what to do. We don't know how to get re-elected if we do it, or words to that effect. Uh, and it's because of their belief in the fear of the community in governments being seen to go weaker than ease about illicit drugs. Uh, if people have a better understanding of the reality of what we mean by that and the fact that it's not getting going weaker than it is, but rather becoming smarter at the way in which we deal with the problem, uh, it's much more achievable. And I think that to me is this challenge in terms of coming to a different recipe moving forward. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And it's it kind of reminds me of, of the uh, rules of engagement challenge, you know, from my military experience, where if all you've got is a rifle, then yeah. you go from shouting and pointing the rifle to shooting somebody. And what you really need is a few steps in between there, <laughs> you know, to smooth out the process. And yeah, I, I think we, right. we need some steps in between what we have at the moment to allow this to progress, you know, otherwise it's going to be like a, a pressure cooker and it, you know, it's going to blow, the lid's going to blow at some point and we'll end up with uh, the sorts of things that are happening in the US. I, I hope not. I hope it doesn't get to that, but um, we, we seriously obviously need to, to have a deep think about it and look at uh, creating mechanisms to let that pressure out and allow things to change, I believe. Yeah, we do. We, I mean, we need to be proactive, don't we, Steve? I mean, it, it, it's, it's right to say at the moment, I don't think we're facing the same problems the United States are facing in any way, but if we sit on our hands and sooner or later it will occur. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are things we can do. It is much easier now for us to be proactive and to create some of these relationships that we've been talking about than it will be if things reach the United States point of view. I mean, the level of distrust over there is such that it's going to be pretty hard to pull some of the key players to a negotiating table, or if you do, to keep them there and have any meaningful dialogue. Uh, we're nowhere, I don't think, anywhere near that stage, really, but we do need, and now is the time to strike uh, while we have the opportunity uh, and to really you know, go beyond the, the lip service and really create, try to create an environment where we do have absolutely meaningful dialogue. We really think carefully through what are uh, the initiatives that could make a difference, what are the levels of understanding we don't have that we need to achieve, uh, and how might we do both. Um, and it's not rocket science in actual fact. It just takes time. 
it takes patience and governments are not very good at, uh, at being patient as you know you're given money for a, a fiscal year budget and you're expected to achieve certain outcomes and if you've got a long-term process for example to law reform, reform in terms of an area of policing uh, if they don't see the results in the first 12 months they're likely to withdraw the budget or curtail it uh, that is my experience and i think that's in this current environment is exactly what we don't want to have happen we need to have the patience to realize some of these changes will not happen overnight uh, but they're so they're critically important for us to engage in and to ensure do happen and that we need to invest now to achieve the future results that obviously all of us as a society need to be achieved mm, wonderful mick palmer we're going to have to leave it there thank you so much for joining us in these two segments of this that's week's uh, future sense podcast Thanks, Mick. We'll um, we'll certainly be in touch again, and we'd love to talk to you about uh, PTSD and and uh, drug law reform yeah. as well uh, down the track sometime. Thanks so much for your time, and I, I really right. hope that your wise words uh, on this podcast uh, reach you know, the right ears. Indeed, I, I have a I have a need to call you a former peace officer rather than police officer, <laughs> uh, just for the for the for this uh, talk. Thanks for, very much, Mick Palmer. Mick Palmer, who was former commissioner okay, of the Australian thanks, Federal thanks, Police thanks. Uh, for seven years and much more than that. Thanks, Mick. Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to the Future Sense podcast with Nick Jeans and futurist Steve McDonald, broadcast weekly. We're also happy to be liked or loved on the platform that you're listening to right now, and we welcome feedback, comments, and input. Thanks for joining us. And remember that the future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs>